that was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mob sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. But then came the fall. One day there appeared on the moth sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So John's wife, who had chosen the moth sofa and adored it, lined up their three children in front of it. Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children? She asked. There's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. And with trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. And Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. John knew They wouldn't, for they had never seen, listen, they never seen their mother so upset. He knew they wouldn't because they knew if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. And he knew that they wouldn't because he was the one who put the red jelly stain on the sofa and he wasn't going to say anything. Friends, we're talking about confession and prayer this morning. And if you remember from two weeks ago, we looked at this passage in James chapter 5. And it's a passage that is very much concerned with Christians becoming healthy. I'm going to say that again. It's a passage that's very much concerned with you, with me, all of us who are in Christ becoming healthy. And while many see verses 14 through 15 with physically sick people in mind, the context reveals that it's spiritually sick people whose faltering faith is in need of restoration. Severe trials, persecution, it had leached away the faith and the joy for these Jewish believers. And some of them, listen, some of them were on the edge of falling away from God. So James encouraged these struggling Christians to call the spiritual leaders, the elders of the church, to pray for them so that their faith might be restored and God would raise them back up to a vibrant faith. And if the weary believer's faith, listen, this is what he's talking about, if it had become sickened because of a pattern of repeated, continuous, unconfessed sin, then confess that to the elders. And then James turns towards the rest of the congregation and reminds them that all of us need to be confessing repeatedly, that's the Greek tense, repeatedly and continuously to one another and in the same way praying for one another because praying to and praying, confessing to and praying for one another helps prevent this spiritual weakness from existing in our lives. Now we spent most of our time two weeks ago looking at verse 15 and we just quickly touched on verse 16. So this morning, We're going to look at verse 16 much more deeply, expand that to verses 17 and 18, and we're going to see how can we apply this to our lives. Now listen, you've got to remember this. Keep in mind, the goal of James throughout his entire letter has been to get us moving toward a maturity in our faith. 
That's the entire reason that James wrote this epistle. Every page, every verse leans towards cultivating in believers a faith that is mature. And so in order to do this, James gives what I see as the CPRs of healthy Christian living. And this morning we're going to look at the first two, and next week we're going to look at the final one. What's the first one? It's confess. The first one is confess. That's the first of the CPRs. Here's what it says. Everybody look at your Bibles. Let's look at verse 16 and see what the Word of God says. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Now remember, James had just written that some of these believers in these churches were spiritually weak because of repeated, continual, unconfessed sin in their lives. Now listen, let's just be honest. You're going, to re- you're going to learn in a minute, if you already don't know, that God sees everything and lays it all bare. So let's just be honest between you and God. Do you have repeated sin in your life? That's still there that you've pulled this cloak of secrecy around and that you battle with. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. And let me tell you what Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, said prior to World War II. He, was, he, he led an underground seminary that trained 25 young pastors in Pomerania. And he lived with, he didn't just teach these men, he lived with them for a long time, and it helped him write the classic book, Life Together. And he noted this. Now listen, see if this isn't reflected in your own life or people that you know. He noted that isolate, the isolation that sin brings as it drives Christian apart, Christians apart and produces individualism. Let me say that in my words. Sin makes us hide and handle life by ourselves. Here's what he writes. Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. You see it behind me, right? I want you to follow along. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is a deep disgrace that is almost unbearable. And in the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Friends, why stand before another confessing our sins? Because it promotes a spiritual poverty in ourselves. As Jesus told told us in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So confessing sin to you or to you, for you to confess sin to me, puts you in a state of spiritual poverty that God blesses. But what's this word confess really mean? I think it's one of the most misunderstood words in practical Christianity. What's it mean? For some, the word confess conjures up the most terrible fear of vulnerability and weakness. For others, it reminds them of personal experiences or Hollywood depictions of sitting in a curtained booth, uh, admitting, pouring out your admissions of sin to a priest. That's what some people think when they think of the word confess. You know, it's all the rage right now on the Internet. Were you aware of this? There are hundreds and hundreds of confession sites on the Internet. Bad Mothers Anonymous. 
youreveal.com, postsecret.com, even churches have begun following this popular trend. If you don't want to confess to your pastor, if you don't want to confess your sins to your brother and sister, then just go on to Flamingo Road Church's website called ivescrewedup.com and you can put on, along with 200 a day, your confession of your sin. But friends, is this what James meant when he instructed us to confess our sins to one another? Is confession merely an anonymous coming out with a sin? Let me teach you what it means. The word confess in the Greek, here's what it means. It means to acknowledge or agree openly, now listen, and joyfully with God's verdict. Okay, let's get rid of pop theology definitions of confession. Here's what it really means. It means to agree openly, to acknowledge openly and joyfully with God's verdict. That's what it means to confess. God's verdict, now listen, some of y'all are not going to like this. God's verdict is that the sinner is guilty. Having violated his righteous standards. You want a definition of sin encapsulated in a few words? Sin is violation of God's standard. But I want to show you how God operates on our hearts through confession, biblical confession, that can lead us towards spiritual health. Now listen to this. He operates with a double-edged scalpel. I'm going to reveal the two edges for you. He operates with a double-edged scalpel. And to show you this, what seems like an odd thought from Pastor Tim, let me show you what he says from Hebrews chapter 4. If you flip back in your Bibles, probably six pages, you're going to hit Hebrews chapter 4. Some of you are counting out your pages so you can prove me wrong. That's sin. You need to agree openly with God about it. Here's the double-edged scalpel of confession. Here's what it means to agree with God's verdict. Here it is. Ready? The first edge is judgment. Here's what Hebrews 4 says, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. That's the scalpel. Sharper than any double-edged sword. There's its two edges. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, there's the judgment, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, listen, this by itself, if I just stop this sermon at verse 13, it's terrifying. Everything is laid bare. Nothing in all creation is hidden. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. If we stop it there, then we'll have an understanding why we don't confess the way that the scriptures tells us, because it's terrifying. Why do we live private lives of futile, powerless faith? Why is it that so many of us, come on, you know this is true, battle over and over with sin that you cannot get a hold of? You cannot overcome, whether it's a sin of the gossiping tongue or pornography or slander or drugs. Something has a hold of many of our lives who call ourselves Christians and our faith is powerless. You know why? It's because we know Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. We know how deeply 
God can see. We know how deeply others can see if we become honest with them. We know that when everything is uncovered, there's an accounting. There's a, there's a judgment that follows. Here's how so many people think they come into my counseling office. If they really knew what I've done or what's in my heart, they would look at me like I'm terrible. Friends, listen. Brace yourself like a man, God says to Job. Here's the truth. God sees every thought, every inclination of your heart, every motive, every desire, every word that comes out of your mouth during the week, every action that you commit every day. And when it's sinful, he sees it, listen, as horrible and repulsive. This is the edge of judgment. If we're going to agree with God's verdict and learn confession biblically, then one edge of that scalpel says God sees the sin and he's repulsed by it. And this can paralyze us from living openly, cleanly, powerfully as we pull these cloaks. You're like me. Pull these cloaks of secrecy around us. I'm going to privatize my life. I'm only going to let people know what I want them to know about my sinfulness. But I'm going to keep the real stuff to myself. But confession has to begin with God's verdict of judgment. Because, but, but it cannot stop there. Or we will live shame-filled, guilt-saturated lives. Friends, I'm going to tell you, I think the most prevalent reason why people live powerless lives when their faith is eroded by sin is because they're so terrified that people will see them that they hide in their sin. You see, Hebrews 4 never meant to stop at verse 13. But that's where a lot of Christians stop. You've got to go on. You've got to get to the other edge of, of the scalpel, the other edge of the word of God. It's the edge of grace. Look at what it says. Verse 14. Therefore, therefore brings in what he just said. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Friends, listen, what was happening in chapter five? What was happening to these Jewish believers? Their faith was faltering. They were losing their grip on faith. And Hebrews says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess because we've got a great high priest. Look what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, listen, we agree with God's verdict. We acknowledge it openly and joyfully. That's confession. And having seen our sin, listen, and seen the heinousness of our sin. The way that God sees it with his holy eyes, but we don't stay there in despair, for we also see the love. We see the mercy. We see the grace of God who loves us and sent his son Jesus to die in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. Friends, I want to teach you what grace means. You've heard me say it many times in this series. You've got to get it in your mind. Grace is God's loving power To take away sin. That's what the word grace means. I know you've heard it's unmerited favor. 
or it's the good that we get when we don't deserve it. I know you've heard all those things, but grace in Scripture is God's power to take away sin. Jesus Christ, Hebrew says, is our high priest. You know what they did, right? The high priest's job was to intercede for the people through prayer and offering and the sacrifice. Here's what a high priest does. He takes the hand of God and he brings it to the hand of the sinner and lets it be a conduit of grace. Jesus Christ is our conduit of grace. He joins the hand of God to the hand of sinful man. And he prays for us. Did you know that Jesus right now is praying for you? He's praying to his father for us. This Jesus, our high priest, he did what we could not do. Friends, he lived a perfect life of obedience. How many of us have lived that? None, Romans says. And when God's word, here's how it works, when God's scalpel, when his word shows me my sin. And I humbly agree fully with the verdict of my guilt. And I come to him confident that my high priest Jesus will pray to the father on my behalf and bestow on me mercy and grace. Friends, that's confession. Jesus will, without doubt, lift your shame, bowed head. And he will look you in the eye and he will forgive and restore. That's why confess means to agree fully with God's verdict. The whole verdict is this. And I want you to listen. Here's the verdict. Lord, you've shown me my sin and I'm guilty of it. I've broken and I am humbled by what I have done. I cannot pay for it. No good works. No extra 15 minutes in prayer. No doubling my time in in God's word. None of that's going to cover my sin. I'm helpless in my sin, but you're whispering something to me. And the name is Jesus. Jesus, who died, who paid for my sins, who is by my father's side praying for me because he loves me and he welcomes me before the throne of his father. You know what? You know what it sounds like when Jesus prays? Father. Tim is here. And I've spoken to him through my word about the sin he has committed. And he agrees. He agrees that he's guilty and he's miserable because of it. But Father, I've reminded him of our love for him. I've reminded him and I've shown him of the grace we have for him. He's here to receive it, Father. Confident that we will give it. So let's shower him with cleansing grace and mercy. That's our high priest, friends. That's what he's doing when we confess, when we agree and when we acknowledge openly before him and joyfully that we're under judgment for our sin. But there's one who died to pay for them. Therefore, instead of judgment, we receive grace. And you know what? Why confess then, James says to one another? You know why? Because Jesus prays on. You know what he says? He says, and Father, Denise has come. She's come with him, his wife, because his faith is weak. He's defeated. She's praying with him. She's praying for him. I've heard her prayers. They're coming up to us. They're rising continually to us for her husband. She has come that he might receive our grace and pour it out on him. Let's give grace. Let's strengthen his faith. Let's change his heart so that he would desire our gifts and not the world's and not slip away from truth. 
Friends, when we pray for one another, we come to God, Jesus, our intercessor, and we go to battle for them. And we ask God of mercy, God of grace, pour down your love. Friends, we need brothers and sisters to bring us to God's thrones, God's throne. And so James leads us to the second part of the CPR training. It's pray. First, it was confess. And now it's pray. He says, look at it again and pray for each other so that you may be healed. He says, take that confessing brother, take that confessing sister, take them to the throne of God's mercy. The one whose faith is faltering needs friends who will bring them to Christ. Now, listen, let me ask. How many of you know somebody right now who is spiritually faltering? Raise your hand. You know their faith is weak. You know it because they're struggling with sin. You know it because they're discouraged. You know it because there's not joy in their life. We take them to the throne. And James writes, go to the throne for them, with them, and in the Greek tense, continuously and repeatedly. Why? Look what he says. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Did you know that the Jews had a saying that the one who prays surrounds his house with a wall stronger than iron? They also said the penitents could do something, but prayer could do everything. They also believed, and listen, because you're going to hear this in a moment, that we need to be right with God and right with each other. Men, you're married. Bible says, if you're not treating your wife with honor and gentleness, don't even bother to pray because God won't hear your prayers. Look it up in Peter. So it's a right heart. It's a person who is right, the Jews said, right with God and right with others, and that we need to bring to bear upon others through prayer the mercy and the might of God. Did you know what what the Jews believed? They believed that I could actually pray on your behalf and bring God's power and mercy to your life to help you change. You could do that for me. We need to do that for one another. Who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? The righteous man is the one who has trusted God. You have to have faith in God. You have to have a position in God and been given a new nature in Christ and been set free to live out that faith in single-minded, wholehearted commitment. Let me teach you something briefly. I own a motorcycle. I'm a motorcycle owner. But being a motorcycle owner doesn't make me a motorcycle rider. Because I can own that motorcycle and it could be a trophy for me and I park it in my garage and I never ride it. And I could tell everybody, yeah, I own a motorcycle, but I never ride it. Friends, righteousness has a positional element because of faith. You are put into Christ. Your old man's ripped out of your life. Your new man has come by the power of the spirit. That's that's righteousness. Therefore, God sees us in Christ as righteous. That's positional. But a lot of people own the righteousness, but they're not living it. And righteousness functionally, righteousness in James means that because I have a new position in Christ, then I live it out in righteous compassion. 
I live it out in righteous living. I do on-ramps, not because it's legalistically compelling, but because there's something in me that wants to see people who are struggling get help, and I'm the one that can help them. That's righteousness. That person's prayers are powerful, friends. They're effective, James says. But notice that James doesn't say that the prayer of the spiritually elite are powerful and effective. He doesn't say that only the prayers of the elders are powerful and effective. He says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, listen, this is so interesting to me. I had to study this for hours and hours and hours until I finally got it. You know when I finally got this? This morning at 6.45. I'm pathetic. I'm terrible. But I finally understood. Why did James go to Elijah? Come on, James. There's better prophets than Elijah if you're going to talk about prayer. I mean, Elijah's my favorite Old Testament character, bar none. But if I were going to talk about the power of prayer, there's probably different people I'd go to. But James goes to Elijah. He says, verse 17, Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produces crops. Elijah was one of the most popular figures among the Jews. Probably the only ones higher than Elijah in the Jewish mind were Moses and Abraham. Elijah is up there, but he wasn't an angel. The Bible says he was a man like us. He had a nature like ours. Yet his prayers had great power. But I want you to see something. And this this is what troubled me this week studying this. James never mentioned the great confrontation on Mount Carmel when 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah are all gathered around their little pig. Pig. Oh, that was bad. Heifer. And praying that Baal would answer by fire, nothing ever happened. And so Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord. He puts his bowl on there. And God answers with a mighty power that licks up even the stones around the altar. And then after that, all 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah were put to death. James never mentions that. That's incredible. James never mentions the fact that birds miraculously fed Elijah meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the evening. He never mentions that he told him to go to Zarephath, Queen Jezebel's stronghold, and live there with a widow where he was, God was going to replenish the jar of flour and the jar of oil every day. He never mentions any of that. To me, come on, this is stuff you mention. This is my hero, James. How about this? He never even mentions that of two people in the Bible, Elijah's one of them that never died before he went to heaven. Here comes a chariot of fire swooping down. Elijah opens the door, steps in it, and it takes him up to heaven. Why does James refer to Elijah? And this is the breakthrough for me. First Kings 18.21 says this. Elijah went before the people, this is on Mount Carmel, and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, friends, listen. James wrote this book to move the early Christians from double-minded living to single-minded living Where you live for God and not God in this world. Double-minded living is I go to church and I worship on Sunday, but the rest of the week it's up to my life. God's got me on Sunday. I've got me Monday through Saturday. 
Double-minded living is, yeah, I want to go to Bible studies. I want to learn the word of God, but I get to hide my sin and nobody ever find out. And James is moving them out of double-mindedness because double-mindedness, listen, friends, it erodes your faith. It creates a sick faith. And so James, look at chapter 1 in James. You remember verse 7, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Double-minded people have unstable faith. How about chapter 4, where it says in uh, verse 8, Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-mindedness is a curse for Christianity. And so James writes this book, to be able to move people to a single-minded faith, which is where I believe deeply in God's promises. I believe deeply in who God is. I know him well, and I apply it in my life in broad, righteous living. And this is the same exact condition in First Kings that Elijah's in. How long will you waver between two opinions? See, James found somebody in the Old Testament that he can identify with because he was battling the same problem and the people of God. So Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Friends, now listen, this is an agricultural society. They're farmers. Rain in the Old Testament was seen as a blessing from God. It was God's favor and provision of his people. So no rain, no blessing. No water, no provision. A drought does terrible damage to both the earth and a civilization. And the earth, it makes it hard, it makes it dry, it makes it crack. This, these are the hearts. Friends, listen. These are the hearts that James is battling. These are the ones that are losing their grip on faith, their hearts, because they're in constant suffering and constant persecution. Their hearts are drying up. They were getting cracked. You couldn't get the seeds of faith in it. But after the people saw God's miraculous display on top of Mount Carmel, this explosive fire from God as he answered from the heavens, they bowed their heads and worshiped, quote, the one true God. The one true God, not God and Baal. The one true God, single-mindedness had come. And so Elijah prayed again, but this time for rain. And friends, listen, he didn't pray once. He didn't pray twice, not three, four, five, or even six times. He prayed seven times, which is a number of completion in Scripture, the perfect number. And all of a sudden, his servant looks over the Mediterranean Sea, and he sees this cloud as big as his hand when it's held up in front of him, and it begins to draw closer, and it gets darker and bigger, and finally God's provision and blessings pour out on their people. Why do you think James uses a Greek tense that says pray continuously and repeatedly? Friends, listen, if you've got a loved one, if you have somebody that you care about, a friend who has confessed to you their struggle, your priestly obligation is to pray over and over and over again until God frees that soul. Pray for one another then continuously. Bring your confessing brothers and sisters to the throne of God and he will bring the rains of the Holy Spirit to water and produce abundant faith. We looked at confess 
We looked at prayer, the first two of the CPR to healthy Christian living. Next week, we're going to see rescue. How do you rescue your friends from sin? We need to pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Father, thank you that you've taught us what confession means. It means to agree or acknowledge openly and fully with your verdict. And Father, you speak with two sides to your voice. One side is the side of judgment. We are guilty and that sin is repulsive to you. To holy God, any sin is repulsive. But Father, there's another edge and it's the edge of grace. And grace is your love and power to take away our sins. And Father, you... Your son intercedes for us. Your son prays for us. Your son brings us to you, Father, and brings your grace to us. What a faithful high priest. And Lord, we need to pray for one another. We need to learn to confess to one another. We need to learn to be honest and not so privatistic. But Lord, we need to pray. And we need to bring that person to the throne of grace when that person's faith is too weak. Lord, you clearly... And you have simply given to us the way to live a healthy Christian life. The Lord, I would confess, and I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters would agree, that we have not done this. Lord, I pray that we would. I pray that even as a result of this sermon, people would go and they would confess their sins and they would be prayed for and prayed for and prayed for until you bring them freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.